Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Nick Mason, co-founder and drummer for Pink Floyd. Nick is the only member of the band to appear on every Floyd album, and the only constant member since the band formed in 1965. Nick co-wrote some of the band's most enduring early tracks, including Echoes, Time, Careful With That Axe, Eugene, and One of These Days. Since 2018, He's led Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets, which performs music from Pink Floyd's early, more freeform, psychedelic years. Nick's been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since 1996 when Pink Floyd were inducted. Our conversation covered the various goings-on in the world of Pink Floyd in an exploration into the how, what, and why of Saucerful of Secrets, who, as this episode debuts, are on the road hitting cities across the U.S. and Canada. Enjoy. So, okay, let's start. Yeah. It seems to be a bit of a moment once again in the Pink Floyd universe between the animals reissue and the exhibition and Roger being out and you being out and the Ukraine single and the talk of the catalog. It's a it's a feast for fans right now. <laughs> yeah. It's almost too much, but uh... how does that all impact you? Are you are is that sort of are you in the center of the cyclone or how much of it do you have to worry about? No, I think we're a small bubble somewhere in the the Pink Floyd universe because one obviously sort of sees what's going on and I intend to go to the opening of the exhibition, which has always been sort of something I've been very fond of, I guess. But as Roger storms around the country shouting at people, I've tended to retreat <laughs> into a slightly lighter form of music so when I see the show later this month here in Seattle, I should not expect a lot of sloganeering? Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a few more laughs, I think, would be the, <laughs> we're, we're the, we're the comedy end of the spectrum. I mean, I, I will say, and obviously we're not here to, to, to talk about Roger's show, but it, it is a stunning spectacle. It really is something else. It's just so full of ideas, but they seem to be getting a little wilder and wilder day by day. You know, it was an interesting litmus test for me was I took my 17 year old son who had, he's just sort of starting his journey into the catalog and understanding Pink Floyd. And he said to me afterwards, that might be the most incredible thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like it, it, it definitely had impact. And I think I, I would imagine as an artist, you can't ask for much more than to at least have your work connect. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, Roger's work is extraordinary. It's very much, I don't know quite how one would describe it, but it's, in some ways, it is the most serious end of rock and roll. It sort of almost moves out of rock and roll into something else. Yeah, that, that's that's something that struck me as well, was like this, this, this is sort of the pinnacle of one extreme of what rock and roll can be. 
And it's interesting to me because of so much of the work around keeping the Pink Floyd songbook, if you will, sort of relevant and current is not only the work around the reissues and the, the ways the music has been is being modernized for every generation, whether it's the sound or the packaging. But as the various members have toured over the years and focused on that sort of part of the catalog of maybe maybe metal, but certainly dark side through the wall, so much of that music it's sort of reproduced, if you will. You know, like when I go see David or Roger, every lick is where it should be, almost because it has to be. You know, those those albums are so drilled into people's heads and so iconic, whereas it seems like the part of the catalog you're focused on, there might be a little more room for freedom. Am I onto something with that? Is that at all? Oh, yeah. No, I think that's exactly what we maintain. I'm fond of saying you're never more than about 20 metres away from a comfortably numb guitar solo. But when it's played, it's, everyone expects it to be played more or less note perfect. And it's a wonderful thing. But actually, what we're doing is, I think, trying to reconnect with some of the earlier ideas behind the music. But actually... Even the sort of regular songs were a vehicle for improvisation around them. We don't always go off on a, on a different path, but it, it should be that every night is slightly different. Yeah. That we all try and re recreate the parts completely. And I really like that. And I think it's something that sort of got a bit forgotten, really. But as the, everything became more elaborate, the records, be, it became more important to try and recreate those records on stage. But actually what's fun is to, and, and I say fun, it's interesting musically, is to develop the pieces a bit. As you revisited this part of the catalog, were there any songs that surprised you in terms of maybe the legs they had and how, and just how much they stood up. And I, and I asked that specifically in the context of, and I hope it's not an offensive question, but a lot of psychedelia or music of that era doesn't stand up well. It, it's very of the moment. And I wonder if, if you found any surprises in this part of your catalog. I think the answer is yes. There were a number of surprising things. It's not that there's one surprising thing that things were necessarily too long, for instance. In the case of Atom Heart Mother, we didn't want to dedicate 40 minutes to, to the whole thing. But then something like Echoes, which we intended to shorten down, actually, it didn't really work very well. And it worked far better to leave it more or less at its original length. Yeah, Echoes, it, it seems like that was the, that may have been the first time when Pink Floyd really perfected the idea of sort of the suite with the movements and it, it, it would be very hard to, to create the edit of that. I wouldn't envy you. Well, as I say, we set out to initially to, to edit it down, but ended up almost extending it. <laughs> Why is it important to revisit this, this music? Well, I think, first of all, I think it's, it's interesting music and lyrically it's quite interesting. But musically, it's sort of perhaps more complex than one expected. There's not a lot of what one might call psychedelia, meaning droning on and on in perpetuity. It's very rewarding to play. I mean, I think that's the rather selfish issue. But the, the reality is it's, it's fun and entertaining 
to work on the music, to play the music. You know, we come off stage usually with more ideas about what we can do rather than going, well, we got away with it. <laughs> that's that's a really beautiful thing to hear. And and although this is an audio format, I will say for the benefit of our listeners, it's great to see that smile animate you when you <laughs> when you when you speak about the music that way. I, I wonder something that's been interesting to me with sort of what I'll call the classic rock canon over the last 10 or 15 years as as artists have sort of renewed their commitment to presenting the music live and touring. This concept of songbook, all of these iconic artists really have a body of work that maybe in real time, the notion of it being a songbook was lost. But now as we look back, we think we have these bodies of work. And I wonder, do you, do you think at all about what happens 10, 20, 50 years from now? Can you think like that? Is this a songbook that lives on? The answer is I don't know. And I'm tempted to say I don't care because I think it, it will or it won't. That one's not going to be doing very much to <laughs> what can you do to, to make music relevant 50, in 50 years' time. And the answer is almost nothing. You simply rely on future generations finding something interesting in the music, whether are the Beatles the next Beethoven? Probably not, really. The popular music is popular music. People will rediscover it, I guess. I don't know. I th- it's, it's so difficult to second guess where music is going to go, and particularly with where it is now and the, the way people take music. This really odd thing where we went from hi-fi to sort of, and then finally the CD brought sort of perfect sound, but now everyone's more or less knocking that on the head and agreeing that vinyl is a, it may not be more accurate, but it is certainly easier to listen to. Do you have a take on that, either aesthetically or from a from an engineering point of view, the, the, the notion that digital is sort of harder to listen to for s- sustained periods of time? To be honest, I don't think, uh, I don't really find that, but I, I, I don't very often sit down and listen to music at that level of seriousness, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure who does. I mean, there's this very odd thing that 40 years ago, we were all quite into our hi-fis and we all had tunnel monitor goals or whatever. We had a quite a nice sort of setup. But now we have this thing where everyone's decided they like vinyl, but God knows what they play it through. There's such a range of equipment now but it's very unlikely that all the equipment is at the same level. So you might have fantastic speakers and a rubbish turntable. Yeah. The whole business of endless sort of great headphones and headsets, it's not quite the same as, as a really good speaker setup. It seems like a lifetime ago when Pink Floyd were one of the few or one of the remaining holdouts in terms of making the catalog available digitally. To the point where it was noticeable that we couldn't we couldn't get our Pink Floyd everywhere we wanted it whenever <laughs> whenever we wanted it. Is that a precursor to what happens today with things like this sort of rumored catalog sale? It's just it's different people who have different ideas about the present and the future, and it just takes time to align everyone. Or was it an aesthetic choice? I'm not sure how much choice, how many choices have actually been made. I mean, the catalog sale. For all of us, it starts us thinking about 
I'm talking on a very personal way that one gets involved in, well, who does become the guardian of the music? And is it our children? Because if it's our children and grandchildren, it's going to get quite messy, I suspect, as everyone tries to do the right thing. What would grandpa have wanted? That is is really difficult because I think we're getting to the ages where we're, we are very conscious of mortality. We probably want to particularly look after our children and grandchildren and so on. And I'm not sure that's uh, what the easiest way of doing that. It might be that the record companies take over the catalogue as, as the guardians, or do you end up with the, with the family trying to, to do it? So there's sort of choices there on that yeah. one. And I would imagine there's different, if there were one right answer, it would be easy, but for every artist and for every actually individual band member, it's probably a different calculus. Yeah, absolutely. But as I, I say, I think very, very hard to second guess what the future holds and I'm not sure what one can do to protect the legacy. Can you put rules in place that say this cannot be used for advertising, it cannot be used for politics? Who, do, who designates what o, what's okay in 50 years' time in terms of something like that? Yeah, that's right. You could imagine a world where the music might be needed in one of those situations. might actually be appropriate as a rallying cry or a point of inspiration. It's very, yeah, I, it, you bring into relief just how difficult making some of those decisions must be. It's also, I would imagine, to a certain extent, a burden for the family to think about, or if it may not be the way someone envisions spending the rest of their life devoted to someone else's work. Yeah. I think a lot about how, when some of the artists of that sort of classic rock era are no longer touring and presenting the music, how sort of heartbreaking it will be. The idea that nobody will see it happens now. Nobody sees the Led Zeppelin catalog played live or, Nobody sees the Beatles unless you go see McCartney or whatever it is. If you could pick any of these artists, Pink Floyd included. I think that's why I like the notion of the songbook, that it's open for interpretation and rediscovery and, and, and performance in particular. And I wonder if you think at all and what your feelings are about this sort of cottage industry of, of tribute bands. Pink Floyd seems to have one of the more, I mean, the idea that there's a Pink Floyd tribute band, at least one that can play arenas. It's sort of staggering when you think about it. It's staggering and occasionally rather irritating when a tribute band can sell far more tickets than I can. <laughs> Again, one has to get used to the idea that it is odd. Well, we, we sort of relearn things, but at one point it was unthinkable that we would re-release or, or release the sort of outtakes of things were done. And all, what one did was you, you released the perfect record and that was that. But over the years, that has changed. And actually, we did end up releasing things that were either demos or whatever because there was that sense that actually the public would enjoy it and there didn't seem any more reason to not release it. Things like that where it changes completely and you end up sort of I say celebrating, but really working through the catalogue, all sorts of things that you never imagined you would eventually would release. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. 
Do you feel at this point the definitive versions of the catalog exist or is there another go around? Well, I I think the definitive versions exist and there's probably a few more bits of pieces to to do or to clean up. I mean, I think the Animals release is a, a good one because of all the records we made, that one had a, a sort of a rougher feel to it that could benefit from a slight sort of polish up, really. And I, I think that it's just possible that if one was going to go back and look at things, the other one that would benefit from maybe looking at is Out of Our Mother. What leads you to say that? Because it was, I think, the way it was recorded inevitably was pushing the envelope at the time. I think it was one of the first records to be cut on, on two-inch tape. Consequently, we, EMI had a directive that the two-inch tape was not to be edited, which meant that Roger and I had to play the backing track <laughs> without stopping for the 20-odd minutes. And there's some fairly lurching tempo changes in it, <laughs> which then made it very difficult to record the brass sections properly. We needed an awful lot of backing track for them to be able to follow it or for, the, for Ron or for John Aldis to, to conduct it. It, it. It's more a technical thing, really, but it, sometimes those sorts of things can be improved a bit. You can hear it sort of as a, as a participant and as a timekeeper. You can, it stands out to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm also curious, in the presentation of, Saucer Full of Secrets, of this band, of this music. What's the emotional connection for you? Is it is it there? Am I does you know what 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 what's happening for you when you when you hear this music being played again? Well, two things really, I suppose. One is a lot of very happy memories, although Pink Floyd is sort of notorious for <laughs> punching it out between themselves. Most of my time with the band was great. You know, they were, they were still are, hopefully, friends as well as colleagues or comrades or whatever. Funnily enough, particularly Saucer, which was the goodbye to Sid and the freeing up of more or less everyone wanting to go in the same direction. As a a nostalgia, but happy nostalgia, plus the fact that there there are still tracks that are still really exciting to play, and every night is an opportunity to do something different, re-examine, whatever. And for me particularly, that would be uh, set the controls. Mm. can be played in so many different ways. It's so exciting to see you engaging with this part of the catalog. And there, I, I personally have this sense of, if not you, who? Because the the parts of the catalog that Roger and David focus on I think by very nature and the scale of what they do, it sort of requires them to to not get too obscure. Although, although I will say, you know, when you go to a David Gilmore show, you're going to get Fat Old Son or something interesting. He does he does not shy away from from that sort of interim period, that post Sid pre Dark Side period. But but no one's immersed in it the way the way you have. No, well, I, I think it's it's inevitable because the problem is that actually the majority of the Pink Floyd fan base, if you like, would want to hear comfortably numb, not necessarily bike. There, there is some sort of sense that 
there are some songs or a bunch of songs that are necessary. None of us are going out on, on the road constantly. So it's every few years, you, it's a big catalogue to decide what to play, I suppose. That, that's the problem. But it, interesting, I'm wondering whether actually the future will be, as you say, that there's a, a songbook. And when people do take liberties with, with the music, that, that maybe is what will be the case in 50 years' time. There'll be a, a sort of, it, it'll be a tribute band, but it'll be a tribute band that actually works in a much, much freer way. Yeah, it, it, it may, once the, once the principals are no longer presenting the music themselves, it may free up the catalog for more interpretation. Yeah. I wonder, when you were building the set list for, for, for this band, was there ever a temptation to, I mean, you've been very sort of disciplined about the, the cutoff. I don't think anybody would fault you if you encored Comfortably Numb or you did something from Dark Side. And, you know, what, what is that? What's, what's happening there? Like, there's a certain commitment to that era. There's a stubbornness in it that I really admire. <laughs> well, I think it's because there's a, um, as we talk about the trench, there's this no man's land of the, uh, finding ourselves battling it out directly with the with the tribute bands, you know, and that, that actually it made better sense to let's sort of stick with an idea and develop it properly rather than wandering off into into comfortably numb land. How many more tours of this exist, and how much you know? Are there are there pieces that you're already thinking? Oh, I would love to work that up for the next run of shows, or have you mined it at this point? There's a whole bunch of other songs that could, uh, the one <laughs> the one I particularly wanted to do because I I really like the feel of the thing is Chapter Twenty Four from Piper, but then when listening to it, it got rather pushed back because there's no drum part on it. So got me that, and I thought I don't really want to be wandering around the stage, loving. <laughs> Maybe I should. Like, Walk around the stage blowing bubbles. That was always a good part of the psychedelic experience. Isn't that when you should just get your well-deserved break, though, and you go? <laughs> <laughs> did you assemble this band or did this band take shape? Like, how intentional were the players? Uh, this, this band took shape. I'm always fond of saying that no auditions were held. It was really Lee Harris who, who I think he'd been to see David playing somewhere in France, and... He thought, well, why doesn't Nick do something? And he quite wisely didn't bring it to me because I didn't know Lee. He went to Guy and Guy said, well, actually, it's not a bad idea. And I thought, well, if Guy's interested, I know it would be that much easier and it, I'd sort of really respect his playing and his abilities. So that was the sort of intro. And quite how Gary got involved, I've no idea. I mean, he was a friend of... All of us, and I think we talked about it with him, not thinking, not thinking he might be interested in joining. That he volunteered. So after that, it was we knew that we need to keyboard player, and Don was really good because he actually worked with Rick on Rick's solo albums. So he had a very good knowledge of what Rick does and how how he does it. In a way, that's part of it that it's that old fashioned thing that it's a bunch of friends really getting together rather than trying to assemble something with, as I say, choosing people. 
yeah just hired guns yeah 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 it's really interesting nick because there's this sort of circle of musicians that that are in the pink floyd universe guy being a great example but i think of even somebody like snowy white like there's a group of guys who they pop up in the various members bands and it seems like there must be some sense of trust or reliability or like, like, what is it about these people that are in your creative universe? Like what, what's happening there? I think that absolutely right. That trust is built up. There is an argument that says it might be interesting to use new and different people, but in a way, if you've got tried and trusted, particularly when you're actually, you're not looking to break barriers to actually intending to do a, a really good version of something that people know well and, and want to hear played properly. Yeah. About the exhibition, I saw it in Los Angeles. It was such a great experience. It was so well done and, and so, to use your word, interesting, just fundamentally interesting to see that stuff up close. But you also seem to be uniquely involved with it. Are you the archivist are you there's there's a there's a sort of heartbeat of the legacy role that you that you appear to play and i just what what is what is that about i certainly have a great affection for for the exhibition and i have affection for a lot of the people who finally sort of get to or, or their work gets seen beyond what's going on on stage and i still have a, a sort of interest in architecture and the people that were used over the years. I'd say two other things about the exhibition. One is it's part of the reason that I'm out with the sorcerers, because the one thing missing I found, although I really enjoyed the whole business of putting it together, is the live music element missing. That drove me to think, yeah, I really would like to go out and play rather than go out and talk, <laughs> you end up being a sort of bit of the, the national treasure thing, you know, telling more stories of how we did it and so on. I also think the funny thing with, with exhibitions is it makes it us look so smart because it, everything appears to, to sort of go logically in a progression through our career. And, of course, it's so much more random than that. Yeah, it does look very well thought out and plotted. That is something. So in closing, I am going to see the show here on Halloween in Seattle. What can I expect in addition to the music? Is there an element of spectacle? What, what's, the, what's the presentation? What should, I, uh, what should I be preparing for? Well, first of all, I don't think you really need to prepare. <laughs> uh, it would be... <laughs> Unlike Roger's show, where maybe... There should be a reading list of four or five important political books and treatises. There's no requirement. I'm tempted not to want to sort of say really what there is. What might be interesting, though, is, well, I'll get the contact details, but come back after the show and tell me what you think. I would love to do that. I would love to do that. It's so exciting to... Uh to know this music's out there being played. I also, I was also hoping as part of the tour, not only are you in the rock and roll hall of fame, but I was recently rewatching uh, the Pompeii film. And I think you have to go in the facial hair hall of fame. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my goodness, Nick! What what a great what you know when I was I, when I was a teenager, that film hadn't been sort of in market for a long time, and it was this sort of underground thing. And if somebody had a a beat up multi generation version of that on VHS tape, they you know they, one would surface every once in a while, and it was like this this bizarre totem to the past that we'd gather around and watch and say, what, what is going on here? <laughs> you know, and again, that was that part of that, that sort of post Sid pre metal part of the catalog that was just this mysterious body of work that wasn't on the radio. And it was a very exciting sort of underground thing to stumble across as a suburban kid in the eighties. It's a great thing. I mean, it was very much the idea of Adrian Marbin, who was the director, and we just sort of wandered into it. But actually to have that record of Pink Floyd playing at that time with that really good quality film, good quality sound, is a wonderful thing. And I, I was talking to Gary Kemp about it a bit because by the time we got to the new romantics, they all had video cameras with sound, and there's reams of of great stuff of what it was really like. And I really think the saddest thing is we never really, we should have filmed Dark Side properly. That would have been a really nice thing to have had. It's kind of crazy that that's lost to history, especially given how how many times you performed it. I mean, there were so many opportunities. It, that, is, that, that is a bizarre... There, there's some interesting film footage, though. I don't know how much of it you pay attention to that surfaces... Uh, Again, in that sort of pre-Dark Side era when you were doing just strange television appearances as you were sort of building in the States. And there's there's one from, I think, San Francisco or Berkeley that it's it's incredible. It's just around metal or pre-metal era. And to see the four of you on a soundstage playing basically to each other, really powerful, really powerful. That is one of the wonderful things about history. Those, the way one goes from... Those insufferable, insufferable four youths spouting what they think is wisdom to <laughs> present day. Well, thank you for making time. It's so wonderful to speak with you. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nick Mason. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at Spotlight on Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.